Welcome back to the program. Some of you may have seen the story yesterday that marriage is at an all-time low in America. We also know that two out of three Americans are overweight or obese. Is there a link between these two issues? Has the physical decline of society and the increase in obesity changed the way we view love and sex? And if so, what are the broad social and economic impacts of that? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Sarah Varney. She's the senior health policy correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Her stories air regularly on NPR and PBS NewsHour. And it is my pleasure to welcome Sarah Varney here to talk about her new book, XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Complicating America's Love Life. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. What was it about this subject that really got you thinking about it in a policy sense? Because it's very easy to look at it and think, well, it's a personal problem that people have and and they should deal with it. To what extent did you begin to think about this as really a public policy and public health issue? Absolutely. So a few years ago, NPR did a series called Living Large, and it was curated by the National Desk. Um, and the question was really, okay, how now that we have two out of three Americans who are obese or overweight, how is that affecting life in America? So we just really started thinking about it in a very broad sense. And as a health reporter, obviously, I had covered um, a lot of stories about obesity and diabetes over the years. And I felt like I just was left at, at the end of those interviews, at the end of those stories, really wanting to know a lot more about how obesity was affecting people's personal lives. So I remember this one young woman, a young girl who was trying to qualify for a weight loss trial at UCSF, um, a, a drug trial. And I had lunch with her and her family, and we spent quite a bit of time together. And at the end of it, I just thought, you know, are you, are you dating at school or, or do you want to date or what's your life going to be like as you sort of move through those early romantic and even sexual milestones? So I started getting interested in this and looking around and and looked at a lot of the obesity literature and saw that there was really nothing that discussed how obesity was affecting our relationships, our human relationships, everything from, you know, those first relationships that I just mentioned to all the way up to marriage. Um, and then when you looked at the sort of marriage literature, there was really nothing that touched on obesity. So how is it that we could have all these conversations about, you know, the state of marriage in the United States and not take into account the fact that um, something that is uh, incredibly impactful on a person's life, their weight, um, uh, is, is, is influencing that. So that's when I decided, okay, well, let's explore this a lot more. What did you find once you started to get into it in terms of the self-awareness of people that were obese and whether they saw it as an impediment, whether they were, whether it was even something they were aware of and the degree to which they saw it affecting other parts of their lives? Well, I can say from both the, the, the literature, the social science, the medical research, but also from a lot of the personal interviews I did. I mean, we really conducted hundreds of interviews with people all over the country for this, for this book. There is a lot of awareness about uh, I am overweight or I am obese. I mean, I think it's, sometimes it's easy to think, oh, you know, how can, you know, my, my grandmother, for instance, was morbidly obese. I grew up with um, watching how the world treated her. And, there, you know, she was completely aware that um, people judged her, um, that when she would go into supermarkets, you know, people wouldn't hold the door for her or help her if she was reaching to get something. So I think when you are obese or even overweight in the United States, you know, you are very much aware that the world is judging you. Um, and I think that, you know, what's le- what was less clear to a lot of the folks that I interviewed, although very clear in the research, was that 
this issue of weight and obesity was having a significant impact on the quality of marriages, on the types of arguments that people were getting into. Um, and while that was mitigated to some extent along racial and ethnic lines, you know, really when you look at those marriages that are under a particular strain, um, it's a lot of those marriages where we would call it a mixed weight marriage, where particularly the the woman is, and these are heterosexual relationships, where the woman is heavier than the man. There's been quite a bit of research looking at um, the quality of those relationships. And what researchers find is that there is a lot more, there's a lot more stresses in those relationships. There's a lot more fighting. And the types of fighting tends to be much more personal. So they would have, you know, these couples uh, recording these diaries of their relationships over the course of many, many months. They would also bring them into kind of laboratory settings and uh, prime them up with certain questions and sort of watch how they uh, responded to one another. And what they find is, as I said, those, those types of relationships seem to be much more volatile and um, fraught with, with very kind of personal attacks. What do we know with respect to the degree that those relationships, these mixed-weight relationships as you describe them, to what extent did they start out that way or evolve that way? Did it start out with the couple with, in a mixed-weight situation or did it change during the course of the marriage? That's a great question, and, and this is something that researchers have really taken a look at. So we know, for instance, that um, people tend to end up with somebody who is a similar shape or weight as they are. So we know that heavier people tend to pair off with heavier people, and we know that slender people tend to pair off with slender, sl- more slender people. Um, but we also know, kind of complicating matters, that that marriage is a sort of a weight-gaining exercise, that when, when we get married, when people get married, they tend to gain weight. Um, that tends to be because there's more socializing, um, people are eating, you know, at, or eating at home more, they're eating sort of bigger meals together. But there was also this one gr- interesting study where this quoted this woman from upstate New York who kind of explained, I think, what a lot of particularly women feel, which was, she said, I'm married now, pass the pie, please. <laughs> you know, you know, this idea that for many people, and we know that this is true from the research, that particularly women will really try and control their weight as they're dating, because they know that in the dating market, being uh, not over, you know, being slender or not being overweight is valued. Um, and then once you sort of enter into marriage, that, you know, you can sort of let down your defenses a little bit. Um, so I, there is not a, you know, you, there, there, are, there are not longitudinal studies, which is sort of what you would need to answer the question that you asked, which is when you start, you know, if, if a couple starts out as sort of a, quote, normal weight or healthy weight, and then they evolve where the wife, for instance, gains more weight than the husband, we don't necessarily know that. But we can look at sort of point A when they enter into the relationship and then sort of point B further down the road and see what happens, um, you know, looking at the sort of comparative weight of the husband and the wife. There is also a socioeconomic component in all of this. Talk a little bit about that, Sarah. Sure. I mean, well, we know that from the beginning that the obesity epidemic, if you want to call it that, has very much hit um, poorer families, for sure, in the United States. Although I will say that that has started to, I mean, in in a sense, sadly, um, not be as true, only because... Now that you have two out of three Americans who are overweight or obese, um, that's hitting not just um, lower income families, but middle income families and even upper income families now as well. Um, so, you know, so I, I think that to the extent that we had these these notions that obesity was simply a problem from being poor um, and that some of the strains on these relationships uh, would disproportionately affect those poorer families, I think that that is less the case now that obesity is so normalized. I mean, it is it has not been since the late 1990s, I think it was 1997, since the majority of Americans were not 
overweight or obese. So we've been in this now for, you know, uh, you know, quite a number of years where it's normal. I mean, the, the, it is the majority of people who are overweight or obese. The other thing, of course, that we're seeing is the children of these people that are obese, these couples, these marriages, these families that are obese, are producing children that also are rapidly tending to be overweight. So this is why I wanted to actually start the book in this neonatal intensive care unit mm-hmm. in Jackson, Mississippi. And Mississippi has sort of, in a sense, been on the vanguard of the obesity epidemic for many, many years. And it's amazing. You go to Jackson, it's a small town, a small city, um, and they have one of the largest NICUs in the country. It's almost a football field long. And you stand in this NICU and you just look down and you see these isolates with these little tiny, tiny babies. Um, I mean, beyond premature. Um, and they are just these sort of wisps of skin and bone and tissue. Um, and these are babies who are primarily born of moms who um, have hypertension or uncontrolled diabetes. You also see right next to them, though, these babies that are really huge, like 12 and 14 pounds. And when I was asking the nurses there, well, you know, how, how, what, what's, the, what's the problem with this baby? You'd think, oh, well, they're big and healthy. And they say, oh, those are infants of diabetic mothers. So these are babies whose mothers are diabetics, and they tend to grow very, very fast in the, in the womb, but their organs don't necessarily develop that quickly. So when they're born, often by cesarean section, they have very underdeveloped lungs, so they're having to uh, you know, be kept alive just in the same way that the very, very premature babies are kept alive. So I wanted to start the book there because I wanted to sort of make the point that, you know, when we think about obesity um, and its effect on, you know, sexual relationships, for instance, this isn't just a sort of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have that? And, and oh, well, you know, it's easy to sort of blame adults for their own problems, if you will. But I really wanted to start talking about, well, this is ultimately the, the ultimate collision, if you will, of fat and sex, these, these babies. And we know that they are now, in a sense, pre-programmed to gain weight much more quickly, um, to develop a lot of chronic diseases at ages that we never would have seen decades ago. I mean, we, we used to, if you remember, we used to call it adult onset diabetes. We never said diabetes could affect children except if it was type 1. Now we never even say adult onset because we have so many children who have diabetes. So these are kids who are really being set up to encounter a lot of serious problems as they get older. Um, this is not just an issue of vanity. It's a real issue of these children's, you know, of their life course. And one of the issues that you've discovered that loops back in on this is that we see more and more of the early onset of puberty in those that are overweight. So this is really interesting. We know that weight, we've always known that weight plays a key role, particularly in girls, of when puberty begins. What I saw in Mississippi and what I heard then from pediatricians around the country is that puberty is happening at much earlier ages. So we used to consider precocious puberty, early puberty, as when, for instance, for a girl, when her breasts would start to bud by the ages of nine. Now we're seeing precocious puberty starting around seven. And just to give you a sense of this, among African-American girls um, who have very high rates of obesity um, and excess weight, one in four African-American girls their breasts are budding by the age of seven. About 15% of Latinos and about 10% of whites. It's much smaller for Asian Americans. Um, and when you go to places like Mississippi in, in the Delta, which I did and interviewed um, a family uh, physician there, you know, he has girls who are as young as five and six coming in with pubic hair. Um, and 
these pediatric endocrinologists in Mississippi are having to give these kids, you know, shots, hormone shots to try and ward off the further development of puberty. And these are not kind of isolated freak cases. These are starting to happen much more frequently in the United States. And I know that there's a lot of discussion about, well, there's chemicals in the environment, that there's stresses at home, that poverty can lead to early puberty. All of those things can be true. But we know that, and I talk about this in the book, I, I, I cite some really interesting experiments that were actually done on monkeys where you kind of strip away all those other excess factors and really look simply at diet and weight um, and how that can trigger this process. And we know that girls who have early puberty um, have a lot of risk factors for a lot of things. I mean, for for depression, uh, for risky sexual behavior, for sexual abuse and sexual touching. Um, so there's a lot of reasons why we should be concerned, and parents particularly, um, whether they're overweight or not, if they have kids who are growing up and are um, are overweight or obese, you know, should be concerned not just with the sort of medical or health complications that might arise from their obesity, but really from the sort of social and developmental complications as well. Another aspect of this is the way society is looking at these people and judging them and what kind of prejudices exist and the degree to which those prejudices continue to change as more and more people are overweight and obese. This, I thought, was one of the most fascinating things that I found and that I write a lot about in the book, and you hear from a lot of characters in the book um, who express this, which is you would think that as obesity has, in a sense, become the norm, that a lot of the discrimination and bias against over excess weight and obesity would have uh, would have sort of you know trailed off, um, and you don't really find that to be the case. I mean, you look at in some particular racial and ethnic groups, particularly among African Americans, um, and to some extent among Latinos, but more among African Americans, you do see uh, sort of you know more acceptance of bigger body shapes. Although I will say, and I have some stories in the book from African American women who talk about how. This doesn't just mean that you can be a really big African-American woman and, and everybody's okay with it. You know, that there's a, still a certain shape expectation um, and that young African-American women are very aware of those shape expectations. Um, so it is true that, you know, even though we now have two out of three Americans are overweight or obese, even among, you know, high school, uh, sort of the ecosystem of high school, um, everybody has sort of shifted the discrimination and bias just sort of upward, you know? So it used to be that the girl who or the boy who was really obese might have been teased. Now it's the kid who is morbidly obese that's teased. So the, you know, the structure is still in place. It just all shifted upward. To what extent are we finding more and more about the genetic component that, that is in all of this? Well, you know, we all we have long said that you know, any sort of health issue is is there. There's a genetic component. There's a behavioral component, um, and there's an environmental component. So even if you know we are to find some sort of gene that that is an quote obesity gene, we all have genes for certain things that can be turned on or off depending upon our behavior, depending upon the environment that we live in. So. I would say that, you know, I don't get into that kind of research in the book. I sort of have left that to other people, and I feel like that's a, an area that has been richly discussed. Um, but, you know, I think that it's very clear when you meet people who have gained weight or lost weight on kind of either end of it, that it's still very much something that, you know, this is not predeterminism. Um, 
you know, that, that there are things that people can do to control their weight. I just did a story actually um, for NPR that aired last week on Morning Vision that was actually about the formerly obese and how they still face discrimination and bias when they go into the dating market and that there's a lot of hesitation among people who are formerly obese um, to reveal that they had at one point been overweight. Um, so in that case, you've got somebody who maybe they're predetermined, if you will, or not to be obese, but they, here they are, they've lost the weight um, and now they're still facing, you know, that discrimination and bias and still a lot of the kind of mental scars of having spent many, many years at being at a very big size. Beyond the multi-billion dollar industry that is the weight loss industry, to what extent do any of these people that are extremely large, extremely obese, to what extent are they capable of or do they ever really lose significant amounts of weight? Well, the numbers are not good. I mean, we know that about 90% of people who try to lose weight within five years gain it back. So that's pretty grim. I did spend quite a bit of time um, going to some bariatric surgery support groups. So these are people who, by definition, have to be very big in order to qualify for the surgery. Um, and there are some of those you know, some of those surgeries that are more dramatic than others. And I actually observed a bariatric surgery uh, in New York City, um, in fact, watched somebody you know, have their stomach cut in half and uh, their organs rerouted. It was, it's pretty dramatic surgery. Um, and, you know, I think that the people that I met that were the most successful at having that, that surgery and the most successful at keeping the weight off were the ones, and I write about them in the book and you hear a lot from them in their own voice, were the ones that were really willing to kind of do the work to figure out how did they get that big in the first place? I mean, a lot of what you hear from people who are bigger is that, you, you know, you don't get to be 200 pounds overweight just by accident, that there's something else going on in your life. Like, for instance, we know that women who are morbidly obese have much higher rates of childhood sexual abuse. So you can't just tell some woman who's very, very, very heavy because, she, you know, because when she was 10, she was sexually abused and she made what at that point was a very rational choice. She decided, and you, I've interviewed adolescent psychiatrists about this, you know, the choice is, okay, now I'm going to try and hide under a sort of a mound of fat to kind of protect myself, physically protect myself, but also I'm going to try and make myself unattractive so that this person, whether it's my uncle or my father, doesn't do these things to me. So now that person is 30 years old and they weigh 350 pounds. To say to them, you know, just go on Weight Watchers is really not dealing with the root of the problem. Um, so, you know, people people develop food addictions. They, there's all sorts of ways in which, you know, you, when you become 100 pounds, 200 pounds overweight, you really, I, you know, from my experience interviewing lots of people and from work and talking with lots of people in the field, you know, you really have a very disordered relationship with food. And so when you lose weight, you know, none of those things went away. And it's the same thing, you know, Dana, one of the main characters in the story, she actually has bariatric surgery and she thinks it's going to be the thing that's going to solve all of her problems in her relationship with her husband, her very loving, supportive husband who you meet in the book. And it doesn't. You know, there's a point at which they're sitting there watching television. She's lost a bunch of weight. She thinks she looks great. And she just says, you know, when are, basically, when are you going to try and hit on me again? You know? <laughs> and he says, I just kind of stopped thinking of you that way. You know, it's been so long since we've had that kind of intimacy that I don't, I, I, I he says, you know, I forgot to hit, I forgot, I, I, I forgot how to hit on my wife, you know? Um, so they have to go in and go to, they go to uh, couples therapy, they go to individual therapy. They really sort of do the work to figure out kind of how do they get to that place? How do they get there in the first place? And what are they going to do kind of building their relationship moving forward? 
And of course, all of this adds, I was talking a minute ago about the weight loss industry, it, it all adds to the support industry that surrounds this whole issue of obesity, which continues to grow larger and larger. Well, one of the frustrating things for a lot of physicians, um, I was just up in Seattle actually doing a Grand Rounds talk about the book, and the chief of the department there, the Women's and Children's Department, she said to me, you know, in all of my years, I think 15 or 20 years of practicing medicine here, I've had two patients who have successfully lost, lost weight, just two. And she said, you know, a big part of that is because I, I want to be able to send these patients to a nutritionist, to a therapist. You know, they need to have the, almost kind of a social worker, right, to sort of help them reorient their lives. Um, and none of that gets paid for by the insurance industry. So you asked, you know, to some extent at the beginning of this, of this conversation, you know, what's the policy? What, why am I as a health policy reporter interested in these things? And it's in a sense because, you know, there are certain health policy levers that can be brought into play to really help deal with the obesity crisis. That if we acknowledge that this is an incredibly tough challenge to try and lose this kind of weight, particularly in the environments that we live in, that it's not just simply about willpower and not being lazy, but that you really need to have a supportive structure in place to make these changes in your life, then, you know, it makes sense to start thinking then about, uh, you know, health, health insurance and its role in supporting these folks as they move through this type of weight loss. And the impact it has on the cost of health insurance. And, and the other issue that surrounds this is the food world in which we live in. I know that uh, former FDA Commissioner David Kessler has written supportively about your book. He's also written extensively about the food world that we live in and the degree to which that environment leads to so much of the obesity that we see. Yeah, Dr. Kessler did this wonderful book called The End of Overeating, and there's been a number of other people um, who also have supported the book. Um, Dr. Mark Hyman, who was President Clinton, is President Clinton's personal physician. Um, He's written a lot about the food industry, as has Dr. Pam Peek and Michael Moss, of course, from the New York Times, and Michael Pollan, all of these folks who have really taken a look at the food industry. You know, I felt like my what what my job was because because so many of them have written so eloquently about it was to really step back and say, okay, well then, so what's the impact on people's personal lives, on human relationships, on on sexual relationships, um, and and really try and say, you know, this is this overlooked part or consequence of this obesity epidemic, and it is, you know, it is ultimately, it is the thing that makes us the most human, you know, the fact that we fall in love and that we have relationships with one another, that, um, you know, these are incredibly important topics to discuss, and I think there's a lot of overweight and obese people, at least this is what I found in reporting the book, who desperately want to talk about this, who desperately want other people to acknowledge that, you know, it's not just about them losing weight, that that the complications from obesity is not just about diabetes or knee pain or sleep apnea or all these other things that come along, although, of course, all that is incredibly important, but that, you know, there are changes that are happening for them to their relationships, you know, with their partners, even in some cases with their children. You know, I think this is the other thing is really looking at how obesity has affected family life in the United States. Just as, you know, you hear Dana talk about in the book, you know, at the end of the day, I would come home from work. And of course, we're all tired at the end of the day and our bodies ache. But when you're carrying around 100 extra pounds, you're, you know, and your knees are throbbing and you have terrible sleep apnea um, and you're miserable because you're, you know, at war with yourself, it's very difficult to have a relationship, be in relationship with another person, even if that person is incredibly loving and supportive. And I kind of went out of my way in the book to find really positive relationships, you know, where the husband or the wife was actually very supportive of, of their spouse, despite the fact that they were overweight. Um, 
so that, you know, you could see that even in those cases, those best case scenarios, it's still really, really tough. And as you touched on a few moments ago, it all is a very holistic problem that the stresses of overweight cause more eating and more seeking of comfort in food, which exacerbates the problem. I mean, this this is a, a vicious cycle in many cases. Oh, yeah. And there's one man we hear from in the book, Eric, who is, I love. We hear from him and his wife. And he is somebody who still, to this day, you know, his weight fluctuates, which is, as we said, very common. It's kind of, it's, it's, it is more normal than losing weight successfully. And he talks about how, you know, he would be driving in the car and he would decide he was just going to go through the drive-thru and he would buy a hamburger or something. And then he would take the wrapper and he would put it underneath the seat in the front seat of the car, even though he had, you know, pledged to his wife that, okay, now we're trying to lose weight together. She had also been overweight and they were trying to lose weight together. So she finds the wrapper in under, under the seat of the car and, you know, shows it to him. And, 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 you know, what else? So the implication is, what else are you hiding from me? And he talks about how his own battle with food and with weight really undermined the level of trust in their relationship. And you know what's really tough to do when you don't trust somebody? Want to be intimate with them, you know? So as you say, it is absolutely all part of a piece. And should we, if we think that somehow our sexual relationships and our, our romantic relationships can be somehow kind of left aside from all this and are not going to be impacted by our relationship with food, you know, you're, you're not really hearing then from the people who are, uh, who are experiencing this. Sarah Varney, her book is XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Complicating America's Love Life. Sarah, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.